0: Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, Host Oliver Cadell is joined in the studio by senior lecturer in audio and music technology at the University of York, Dr. Gavin Kearney. Gavin currently teaches both bachelor's and master level courses on spatial audio and surround sound, audio engineering, and sound production and post-production methods. He also continues to work in the audio industry as a sound engineer and designer. In this episode, Gavin focuses on ongoing research, industry practice standards, and enhancing audio description.
1: Dr. Gavin Kearney, welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. So, what have you been up to today?
2: Uh, Well, it's been a... A busy train journey really just trying to catch up on work on my way down it's kind of nice actually you know uh, I don't have any students knocking on my door when I'm just stuck on a train carriage for two hours where I can actually get some stuff done so uh, so yeah it's actually nice thanks for inviting me down so I could actually catch
1: up on some stuff so where are you heading?
2: Uh, well so I'm down to London uh, just on my way to the BBC production convention tomorrow so uh, we're just going to be showcasing some of the work that we've been doing on Immersive Audio for the last uh, couple of years yeah and you know Chris Mike, who's organizing the uh, the event from the BBC, he's actually one of our PhD students uh, at the York Audio Lab, um, and so, uh, so it's nice to kind of touch base with him as
1: well. I'm going to start with my usual favorite question, which is, Gavin, how did you get into the industry? How did you become interested in immersive audio, etc.?
2: All right, okay. Well, that's a loaded question right there, isn't it? I mean, I guess I got interested in audio like so many people in this industry who who kind of get into it via music, right? And so, you know, when you're a kid, you know, a teenager, you, you want to express yourself, you want to take on the world. And of course, best way to do that is through music. And I remember... You know, I'm obviously, I'm an I'm, I'm Irishman I'm from Dublin. At the time when I was growing up, it was uh, an incredible music scene in Dublin. And I remember going to the gigs and not only being kind of, you know, wowed by the, the, the power of the music, but also by, you know, the guys behind the mixing consoles. You know, they were they were there, you know, controlling all of these knobs and, and faders and buttons. And I was like, how the hell do they know what they're doing? How do they know what all these buttons do? And so I was just intrigued by the whole thing. And so, uh, so that kind of led my way into audio. My first jobs in audio were actually in, live sound. So I remember I worked for a PA company at a place called The Factory in Dublin. And the, the PA company was called Lytton Lane. Yeah, we were there kind of working with crews who were hiring out PA equipment and be sent out on tours and stuff. So we ended up working with, you know, some big gigs and big tours and that sort of thing. And that was great for a while. Good experience. But then I, I kind of said, well, you know, I, I'm interested in the technology. I'm interested in getting my hands dirty and, and understanding more about the technology. And that's why I decided to try and go back to, to you know, the, the Sort of engineering aspects of things and and acoustics and so forth. That's kind of where I came from. And immersive audio was a sort of a natural thing that kind of occurred because of my work on in, in sound reinforcement. I was like, okay, we have these big loudspeaker systems. What can we do to make concerts sound better? And so, you know, we were thinking about sound systems where we had rigs that we would delay the sound to try to make a better sound reinforcement for audiences and so forth. But then that came to Ideas of, of working and designing sound systems that would work not only for live concerts and stuff, but also for other applications like e-learning, you know, and teleconferencing and that sort of thing. So I ended up doing a master's by research in that stuff. And, you know, I was fascinated by binaural, fascinated by multi-channel, and I just, got, I just grew a passion for the whole thing.
1: So uh, let me ask you about your educational background. Your undergraduate degree is in electronic engineering. Did you always intend to work in audio?
2: I always wanted to work in audio in some way. I guess around the time when I was deciding what university courses I was going to do, I wanted to kind of do either music or or engineering. And at the time, there wasn't, in in Ireland anyway, there wasn't undergraduate music courses, uh, music technology courses that you could go for. So I was kind of, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I said to myself, okay, I'll go down this engineering route, this electronic engineering route, and see where it takes me. But at the same time, you know, after a couple of years working as an undergraduate, or studying as an undergraduate, I I got some work experience, as I said, in in, uh, PA companies and stuff. And that actually ended up, I took a year out from my undergraduate studies to work on that stuff full time. And then I came back and finished it off, you know. It always was part of the plan, but, you know, kind of getting there was a little bit harder than it could have been had there been a music technology related degree that I could have just hopped onto when I came out of school, you know. But... Yeah, then when I finished up with my undergraduate, uh, I went and did a master's in acoustics and then a PhD in audio signal processing. So uh, again, that wasn't part of the plan either. It was uh, it was a case where I was going to go do my master's degree and go back into industry and you know work there for a while. But at the time, we were doing some research that actually started attracting attention and started you know getting some awards and stuff. And I thought, actually, you know, this this kind of research and development stuff, maybe this is this is a good way to go. Plus, as well, there was you know also the kind of selfish motivation that I had my own working hours. So I could decide, you know, okay, today, I'm, I'm going to hardcore work on my research and development. And then tomorrow, I'm going to focus on music and stuff, you know, so it was quite flexible that way. It's a little less flexible these days, <laughs> because we're so busy. But back then it was it was, uh, you know, it was a good opportunity to kind of do, do what I wanted to do, do what I wanted do what I loved doing, and get the best of all worlds,
1: basically. Very interesting. You were previously a lecturer in sound design and now a lecturer in audio and music technology at the University of York. Can you tell us about these courses and what they cover?
2: Yeah, sure. I guess when I, when I first moved to, uh, to York in uh, January 2011, I was working for the Department of, of Theatre, Film and Television. And that was primarily to teach on the sound design master's course there. And that master's course is actually part of a post-production master's. So you can do you can choose to do sound design, or you could choose to do visual effects. So the sound design students they learn you know the entire workflow, ranging from from production sound, learning how to hold booms, how to you know apply labs, production sound recording workflows, asset management, bringing stuff into Pro Tools, editing, learning how to do foley, how to do ADR. Um, and then constructing this all into one big final mix, and then mixing on serious large format consoles, you know. And so that, there's a real kind of good production and post production aspect to that course, but also mixed in with sort of the language of sound design as well. So the work of Shion and you know David Sonashin and so forth, you know, the, it's a very important part of it. Just being able to to you know craft a mix, craft a soundtrack that actually tells the story as well as the visuals. So that's a, that's the sound design masters and the Master's in Audio and Music Technology, which is what I work on now, is housed at the Department of Electronic Engineering. And it's it's also in collaboration with the Department of Music. And it's a much more technical master's, I guess. So it's focused more on the sort of audio engineering aspects, you know, particularly if you, you know, want to combine science, technology, and creativity to create new applications and new technologies that work for music production, music recording, synthesis, VR, surround sound you know, so all of these different technologies are, are all core parts of, of what the, the course is about. So you know our students they'll they'll work on projects ranging from you know iOS app development through to uh, voice recognition systems, through to binaural sound for audio for VR. So it's you know it's quite across the board. And psychoacoustics is a really important part of that, as well as kind of being able to program and, and develop and you know understand at the end of the day that it's all about the listening experience. So whatever technology is developed has to be subject to you know good perceptual analysis and that sort of thing. So yeah, they, they end up being engineers of a caliber that's really desirable to the industry, particularly to to technology uh, manufacturers and and that sort of thing. Kevin, can you tell us more about Sadie Project? So yeah, the SAIDI project is a project which I was working on for the last few years. It was funded from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And Sadie stands for Spatial Audio for Domestic Interactive Entertainment. The unknown truth of that is that it's actually the, the acronym I chose because it's also the name of my godmother. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it just happened to be those letters that, that that worked. Amazing coincidence. There we are. Amazing coincidence. Um, but it's basically trying to improve uh, immersive experiences in the home with a particular... angle on uh, game audio technologies. Um, so, you know, the idea being that, you know, game audio consoles are now, you know, commonplace in the home. Um, and so you have the, the ability now to incorporate technologies such as motion tracking into game systems that could also be, uh, uh, you know, able to control some aspect of the surround sound systems. Yeah, The issue that we have in cinemas at the moment is that you have you know, more and more loudspeakers being added into into cinematic experience. So like Dolby Atmos, you know, you can have up to 64 loudspeakers or thereabouts. Whereas in the home, that's just not possible, right? So, you know, soundbar technologies have developed quite a bit. And what this project is looking to do is to try to understand, okay, if we can combine sensor technologies with soundbar technologies, and also looking at other technologies, such as uh, you know um, mobile phones and so forth, how can we create more engaging and immersive experiences in the home? And what are the challenges there, both the the technical and, and the sound design challenges that we have to overcome? So, so that's what that project's all about. It's been going for the last couple of years. It's pretty much wrapped up, actually, and we're moving on to the next phase projects. The outcomes of the SADY project have been pretty good and been adopted by quite a lot of people people. In particular, Google have taken up some of the binaural filter work that we've done. So it's interesting when you watch YouTube 360 or you use Google Resonance or, you know,
1: Omnitone, you're actually listening through Yorkshire ears, which is kind of cool. (laughs) Amazing. How important is 3D sound for immersive experience at home? And do you think it will become a commonplace eventually just for everyday average consumer as well?
2: I think it is pretty important in the home. I mean, there's obviously the entertainment aspects, but really we have to think also beyond that because actually, you know, immersive sound opens up a whole new realm of possibilities that are beyond just mere entertainment value. So the, the first thing is accessibility. Yeah. So one of the projects that we're working on and working with my colleague Mariana Lopez is called Enhancing Audio Description. And the idea behind that project is that you can use immersive technologies in the home to try to create mixes that are much more accessible to people who are visually impaired. And this also goes for cinema as well. So, you know, if you're a visually impaired person, you go to the cinema, you sit down and you you have to wear a pair of headphones and you're listening to a downmixed version of the 5.1 mix and somebody on top of that commenting about what's happening. And so the same goes for home. And, that, and that's great. And, you know, visually impaired people do like that aspect that they now have, are following what's going on with the story. However, spatial audio gives us an opportunity to create something that's much more theatrical, that we can then, you know, at the rendering stage, we can create sound objects or or manipulate sound objects, should I say, to create a more immersive mix where you can unpick what's happening. You can unpick where the characters are rather than, you know, in a 5.1 mix where all of the character-driven sound effects, all of the dialogue, everything is coming from the center channel. And if you're visually impaired, that's really difficult to follow what's going on.
0: I sit on my bed, my dingy room full of shadows. The only light is from my window. I face the light, waiting for it to start again. The nurse brings the silver bucket and gets me ready. Mother comes in. I don't know what happened, it's worse this time. She gets the oxygen mask, as something moves under my skin. There's only one way to get them out.
2: So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect is, of course, with, you know, telecommunications as well. So, you know, the way we're interacting with technology, in particular, um, uh, mobile technologies is changing. You know, there's no surprise that companies like Facebook have, you know, bought Oculus. Um, They see big market potential for changing the way in which people interact with social media. And so one can envisage that in the home, you're going to have, you know, the ability to have not, not the feeling that you are there anymore, but the feeling that they are here. Yeah. So that when you're engaging in a social media conversation or in the telephone conversations, or video conferencing, that you feel like you're there with the person. And immersive sound is critical to making sure that happens. And then I guess, you know, the other aspects to this are, you know, things that, that, really go beyond entertainment value things like training, things like therapy, for example, we have a, a project where we're working on that we're working on with um, accessible arts and media as a charity in York and, and that's looking at using immersive soundscapes to try to help children with autistic spectrum disorder so we're trying to you know allow realistic sound fields to be exposed to these children who have issues with particular sounds. And so through that exposure therapy, we're able to kind of help them develop and and overcome some of the anxiety issues that they can have. So yeah, I think there's huge potential here. And I think over the next few years we're going to see some big steps forward to getting immersive sound in the home.
1: Where can our listeners find more information about all the things you talked about? Anything available for a public domain to read and explore more? Because it's quite groundbreaking research. Yeah,
2: I guess a good place to start. Well, particularly with the Sadie project, the Sadie project has its own website. So wwwsadi projectcouk and a lot of the research results and publications that we created for that are up on that website and also the enhancing audio description project has its own website which is uh, www.enhancingaudiodescription.com and then of course we have our own departmental web pages which you know showcase all of our research so definitely people who are listening go to our web pages look for
1: audio and music technology and you'll see um, all the projects that we're working on on immersive audio he totally answered my next question, but just in case if there's anything else to add, what are the challenges that are being addressed in this project? Is there anything else you haven't mentioned? And perhaps have you come across uh, quite significant unexpected issues during the research?
2: I guess one thing that uh, I haven't mentioned, but, and I won't say it's unexpected, although I guess something that we hadn't strongly considered, but in retrospect, really should be considered is uh, the whole aspect of sound quality. So when we started working with Google, We did some perceptual listening tests on what Google currently had in terms of their binaural audio system to what we were proposing and the different binaural filters that we had. And it was very interesting to see that, you know, the spatial audio quality of our filters was higher ranked across the board over what Google currently had, which was great to see. But then we also asked the people in this study, okay, what is the most important thing to you in an immersive audio system? And we had all of these different attributes like naturalness and envelopment, externalization, and so forth. The number one thing was sound quality. And I think that's something that's got to be key to any immersive audio technology development is that it has to sound good. It doesn't matter if you've got the best externalization, the best localization, you hear sounds going above your head, that's wonderful. But if it doesn't have that,
1: you know, engaging, hyper real, great timbre, it's not going to fly. I have to admit, I have spoken about this specific problem to many people and I heard these concerns before. I'm wondering, is there anything on the horizon that you guys potentially anticipating in terms of that being a solution or at least uh, potential avenues to explore that could lead to significant improvements or ultimate solutions for this problem?
2: Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that we're looking to do is to, first of all, try to Make the sound quality somewhat uniform across different rendering schemes. So, for example, in first order ambisonics, right, you can create an ambisonic mix and you can render that over headphones over what we we call virtual loudspeaker reproduction. So, the idea being that you're you're listening over headphones but you're sat in the sweet spot of a virtual loudspeaker rig. But how that virtual loudspeaker rig is formed, whether it's a cube, an octahedron, a dodecahedron, whatever, that has significant impact on the perceived timbre even though it's the same mix. And then you can take that and you can you can then look at different ambisonic orders where, you know, second order, third order, fifth, seventh, you know, the spatial audio quality gets better. The fidelity gets better. You're able to localize the sound sources with much greater clarity. But again, the timbre changes. Yeah. So you have an issue here. On the one hand, ambisonics is, is a wonderful speaker agnostic format. You know, you create one mix and reproduce it over multiple loudspeaker rigs but at the same time you have that problem where it's going to sound different over these different loudspeaker rigs. So we're working on sets of filters that try to equalize the difference between each of these different arrays so that you can apply that at the rendering stage and say okay here's my here's the filter which you know I know will work as a as a good benchmark here so that when I reproduce my sound and I'm mixing my sound if I'm a content creator then when I go to another loudspeaker system, or another virtual loudspeaker array, or even to a real loudspeaker system, that I have something that's more consistent. Yeah. So it is quite shocking, you know, when I give people demonstrations of this, just flicking between different decoding schemes, how radical it changes, particularly in the high frequencies. So I think that's a big problem, and it's
1: something that we want to overcome. We kind of moved on from really, really fascinating concepts that you're researching at Sadie at the moment. I would like to come back to it just for a brief moment. And I'm wondering if, as a creative, do you see any potential ways of using those findings, for example, where you enhance audio for visually impaired people or... People with autism and you know learning disabilities like that. Is there anything you can take from that domain and apply in the creative world, in a world of storytelling, gaming, whatnot, in a practical sense?
2: Mm, yeah. I guess with the Enhancing Audio Description Project, one of the key goals with that project is actually to take everything from literally from the script right through to post-production and consider that in terms of accessibility, right? And So what we ended up doing from the spatial audio side was actually thinking about what the end listeners are truly hearing when they hear, you know, sound sources with different spatial panning, with different reverbs and so forth. What do they perceive? So we actually ran a whole lot of listening tests and, and, you know, we had, for example, five different voices coming from the front and then we gradually started spreading them out. And at what point were visually impaired people able to pick apart these different voices and say, okay, yeah, I can tell there's five people here now. Similarly, you know, if we wanted to change the perspective of of different rooms, how did, you know, uh, what were the threshold levels for changing the reverbs and, change? you know, how did we change the reverberation parameters in such a way that they knew this scene is now different to the previous scene, yeah? So that they had a good idea there was some perspective change. So all of this stuff can be, you know, incorporated into standard post-production strategies, yeah? And what's really fascinating is that we've run tests with both visually impaired and non-visually impaired people and asked them, okay, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the standard audio description mix or do you prefer our enhanced audio description mix? And, you know, the the visually impaired people are like, well, yeah, it's, it's good. You know, I do like my audio description, yeah? Uh, some of them are quite used to it. But across the board, the non-visually impaired people said, yeah, that enhanced audio description mix is awesome. We really love it. So there's something to be said there. And that's a, that's even with visuals that, you know, you don't have to relegate the dialogue to the center channel anymore if you do it in a good controlled way, in a way that, you know, is psychoacoustically possible to do. And so I, th- I thought that was great. You know, just the average listener prefers this mix over what they usually hear
1: in 5.1. That's really interesting, not something I had a pleasure to deal with personally, but it seems to me that Traditionally, people always tend to just that's across all kinds of industries, uh, film, music. People tend to aim for this sort of very uniform, very transition smooth kind of flat is a is a wrong word. You know, these kind of high contrast and perhaps less conventional panning approach always seem to be punished, considered as a version of a rough mix as opposed to a finished mix. And now we're learning within the immersive audio domain that perhaps this is something we enjoy more than. the app approach. I think the key thing here is controllability
2: because what we can do with an enhanced audio description mix is kind of contained within the headphone system, you know? So the next step for us is to actually try out this stuff on large scale loudspeaker systems, you know? So Dolby, who are a partner uh, on this project, we want to continue working with them on, on Dolby Atmos and see how that will translate. So I think, you know, that's a key element here, that we have proper control that actually the people who are listening to these mixes are in the perfect acoustic sweet spot because they are listening over headphones and and we've controlled the sound field. But when you're in a large auditorium and you're trying these different sound design strategies, they may not always translate. And so we have to find out what will
1: and what won't work. Very interesting. I mean, I could sit and talk about these things forever. It's fascinating. But let's move on. So... Um, Audio for New Realities. You are the leader of the Audio for New Realities group in the Audio Engineering Society. What are the objectives of this group and how did it come about first place? The group came about from
2: conversations that I had with Michael Kelly, who's the current chair of the Audio for Games technical committee of the Audio Engineering Society. So I'm vice chair currently. And, you know, Michael and I were kind of saying, right, well, you know, the AES has been doing some stuff in this space, they had the Audio for Virtual and Augmented Reality Conference in LA a couple of years ago, and that was great success. And the AES kind of realized, you know, we don't really have a proper roadmap here or a proper way of dealing with, you know, recommendations and standards and practices and so forth. So we said, right, okay, let's let's form a subgroup as part of the Audio for Games technical committee. Now, it's not so much that this is about Audio for Games per se. I mean, it is across the board for all new realities media from cinematic VR right through to linear, nonlinear narratives. But I think the goal of it is to try and create this roadmap so that people who are coming to this from an audio engineering perspective, be it researchers, be it system designers, be it sound designers, that they're able to kind of come to this place and understand, okay, I want to find out more about capabilities of Unity, what I can do in terms of 3D audio within that framework, yeah? And so it's sort of, we're thinking of like a one-stop shop for this yeah but in order to do this because there's so much out there at the moment in terms of different ways of creating content we're kind of surveying the landscape right now, before we settle down on any sort of standards or anything like this, we want to see what we have that is common to all of these different approaches for creating immersive content. So, you know, things like ambisonic, things like binaural rendering, these things that permeate through all of the different technologies and formats, what's going on with them? And is there something that we can do to help A, help people understand what these technologies are about? B, to recommend certain practices and and workflows where they can utilize these technologies well, so that they translate in a reasonable fashion across the different distribution formats, and then see to think about, okay, what is making these different technologies sound quite dissimilar? Um, And again, how can we unify and bring them all together and try and create some recommendations and potentially some standards down the road? Right now, because like I said, it's so volatile, creating standards right now is probably a little premature. There are things that are starting
1: to settle down a little bit, but I think there's more work to be done on this yeah a lot more really interesting i'm wondering if there's anything else you would like to mention that is important as far as audio for new realities is concerned anything interesting you're planning to embark on in the future years one thing that i would like to mention and it's something that you know when we were discussing the creation
2: of this subgroup is that we you know if we are thinking about ways forward in terms of recommending you know practices and standards and so forth that's we have to engage sound designers, you know, the people who are working with these production tools and who are going to be creating the content that will go out in these different distribution formats. They need to be consulted and part of the process of, you know, any sort of recommended workflows. So I think that's a core aspect of what this group is about and, and separates it from other sort of, for want of the better term, standards groups, yeah, is that we have, you know, good key practitioners who are working
1: in all aspects of the chain. You know, and uh, and I think that's an important thing to have. Yeah. For those who are listening to us right now, if there's anyone who is interested in becoming a member or a part of this community, what would be the best way how to get engaged, how to get in touch and apply or just speak to someone, perhaps? Um, Well, so I guess uh, if you're not a member of
2: the Audio Engineering Society, you should be. It's a great way to, you know, get in touch with people who are working in the industry, who are at different levels from sound design right through to, you know, researching on ambisonic audio, yeah. Um, and so I think the Audio Engineering Society events are a great way to to network and meet people and get your name out there and to kind of learn new things about you know, what's happening in this, in this you know, very rapidly changing landscape. So, you know, there's a lot of great upcoming events. There's the conventions which are happening in Milan and New York this year. There's also a Spatial Audio Conference uh, happening in Japan, if you can make it over there. Um, but there's an Audio for Virtual and Augmented Reality Conference in Seattle uh, in August as well, which is going to be quite a cool event. And then, uh, you know, big plug here uh, in York. In March 2019, we're going to be holding an international conference on immersive and interactive audio. So if you're, you know, local to the UK and you want to get in on the action and and network with people and and understand what's happening in terms of the industry uh, at the moment, then that's the place to be.
1: Yeah, Seattle, Japan, for a lot of people, (laughs) sounds probably too far. But if you're a local listener, definitely make it to York. It's very accessible. I'll I'll be there. (laughs) Thank you very much, Gavin. Moving forward nicely, I wanted to ask personally, from what I've gathered, you teach, you do a lot of research, you've got fingers in all kinds of things, but you're also a, a practitioner. You still work on um, industry projects. I would love to know more about that side of your life and if you could share your experience in the, in the past years and your involvement with this you know, new immersive audio revolution that we've seen in the past four years, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think it's been a kind of a natural progression actually because, you know, um I've been working on on film and TV stuff for the last while and then, you know, we moved into the immersive stuff and particularly the binaural stuff is a natural progression for that. You know, one of the key projects which uh, took me quite some time actually was um projects where I was sound designer for a film called The Knife That Killed Me which was produced at the University of York um, and released through Universal Pictures and that was an incredible experience because we were working with a director called Kit Monkman who shoots everything on green screen and so our job as sound designers was to to try to create a world that was plausible and believable through the sound but also to convey the emotion and and the story and the narrative so that was a great challenge and you know the person who worked on that with me Andy Manns I was the supervising sound editor, and he was the sound designer. And we ended up working again together uh, on on the next project, which was uh, completely unrelated, but serendipitous in the way that we worked together, because he ended up working for Mercedes-Benz Grand Prix. And we both ended up working together on immersive audio for their simulators. And so it was it was going from one extreme to the other, you know. So we'd been doing this, you know, 7.1 stuff for cinema. And now we were doing this immersive audio stuff for Lewis Hamilton. You know, it was great. But that was a completely different experience because, you know, they were interested in very realistic sound fields and trying to create that absolute definitive experience as it would be in the car and we were at the time when it was changing over from V8 to V6 engines in Formula 1 so we had to tell them how the V6 engines were going to sound and they didn't believe us at first they were like this can't be how it's going to sound and then they went and uh, went onto the tracks and then realized oh god these guys were right you know and so they were prepared and you know, I'm not going to, you know, take credit for anything, but, you know, Lewis Hamilton did start winning a lot of races after that. So, you know, maybe we were some small part of that, you know, helping them out in the simulators. But yeah, so it's been, it's been, you know, great across the board that we've been able to kind of work on these different projects that are so varied. Um, right now, we're engaged in a project with, with Abbey Road Recording Studios um, where we're actually looking at workflows for, Recording live music performances in VR. So, if you you want to have a 360 performance through a VR headset of a band in Abbey Road Studio Three, for example, which is where we did a lot of the, the work, how how do you record that? So, that's that's a, a big challenge and something that we we have been addressing through um, trying different microphone strategies. Um, you know, seeing what works in terms of sound field mics, uh, what doesn't work, um, what is tied in with standard studio practices so you know can a sound engineer who works uh, in a recording studio go ahead and put their usual spot mic setup on you know uh, the drum kit and the guitar amps and the vocalists and stuff and then mix that immersively and have something that ties in well with the visuals yeah but still getting that plausible or or rather visceral hyperreal experience you know so that we expect from music production So it's great that, you know, we're, we're still getting to, to look at those practical challenges uh, in our practice. And that really helps us, informs us when we go to, to teach students about this stuff that we're able to say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is, this, these are the challenges that are facing the industry right now in terms of workflows, in terms of recording, in terms of mixing. Um, and it, it's, it's awesome that, you know, we can also collaborate with, with people like Abbey Road, Because, you know, they have that weight and that reputation that enables us to, you know, to, I guess, uh, have that weight to the research when we go to, you know, present it to
1: our students and to the academic community. So. So moving on to my last few questions, what's in store for the faculty where you teach and conduct most of your research as well as for you personally? Well, in terms of the research...
2: I guess the way we're going at the moment is we're looking at
1: trying to move into
2: six degrees of freedom VR. So the idea being that currently when you've done you know your your VR headset, that if you're in a cinematic VR context, for example, that you're in a fixed position, you have three degrees of freedom of head rotation. And there are some strategies that we can do what's called 3DOF+, where you can have the head translational movements and so forth. And in a sound design context, that presents some challenges, but the bigger challenge is with six degrees of freedom. So if I record, uh, again, for example, a musical ensemble, what can I do to um, have that recording or that one mix that's still an ambisonic mix, but try to move closer to musicians, around musicians, and, and sort of kind of have a renderer that breaks apart that mix and allows me to treat all of these different sources as audio objects. So, you know, that's the next big Challenge that we're going to work towards that as well, you know, uh, in, in conjunction with the Google stuff that we're doing right now, which is looking at spatial audio through the browser. So we're currently working with the Chrome team and trying to understand okay, if, if I'm using a, a lossy codec on my uh, ambisonic mix, then how is that going to translate at the end user? Yeah, so uh, if I'm trying to stuff, you know, 16 channels of a third order mix into, you know, 256 kilobits per second, what, what's going to happen? So uh, so yeah, that's that's the ongoing research for the short term, I guess. But yeah, there's lots of exciting stuff coming up, some that we, we can talk about, some that we can't. <laughs> but one thing's for sure, um, that we're going to be quite busy planning this conference on immersive audio for the coming year. Um, that's something that the department is going to be, you know, quite involved in, and um, and we're really looking forward to welcoming people to York, uh, welcoming the community to come and, you know, uh, check out the research that we've
1: been doing, and we're very excited to hear what everyone else is up to. That's amazing. you certainly mentioned a couple of hottest topics at the moment. One of them is six degree of freedom in the audio domain, and another one is spatial Order for web VR. And I appreciate it's totally early days, but would love to have you back uh, at some point to talk more about these two topics. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of interesting advancements in the industry in the coming months. What's your favorite project that you've been involved with and why? um. (laughs) That's like saying, what's your favorite kid? I guess the most
2: fun one. Was working with Mercedes and being able to go to you know to the different Formula One events and you know do recordings out there. That was that was quite an uh, awesome experience. But I think the one that I'm I guess I'm most proud of right now is is the enhancing audio description stuff. The fact that what we're doing is really making a difference to the lives of, of visually impaired people. It's something that I never considered when I. Undertook this immersive audio journey is that we would be able to kind of help people with different disabilities, um, and I think that's a very, uh, a very powerful thing to be able to do. And we're also in conducting other research at the department as well, which is looking at VR more generally for health and well-being issues as well, particularly anxiety. You know, like I mentioned earlier, through exposure therapy and so so forth, how we can, how we can help people, and, and I think that's that's just awesome.
1: I think a lot of us who work in the audio industry take a huge pride in the sense that you know, we touch people's lives through storytelling and entertainment, but you know, not a lot of people can you know, say that by conducting their work in the audio field um, actually makes a very big life-changing difference in people's lives. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. And just my last question. What piece of advice would you give to someone who wants to enter the industry today that you've learned from personally? One of the things that I get to see
2: as an academic is, you know, our students go out into the world and, and, you know, undertake um, positions in industry. For our undergraduate program, we actually hold a year in industry scheme, you know. And the students who get the great positions, you know, the really good work experience positions are the ones not with the top marks. They're the ones who are out there, you know, not just sending their CVs to companies, but actually knocking on the door of these places, talking to people, getting their name known, networking. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that thing of fortune favors the brave. Yeah, I really, I really feel strongly for that. You can have the best technical skills in the world. But if you don't get out there and get your name out there and, and be very passionate about what you do, you might as well not do a degree program. Yeah, you might as well, I don't know, do something else. But I think you've got to be out there putting your name out there and
1: and being bold. That's brilliant. And I think it's one of those that not too philosophical, not too complex. It's a very straightforward piece of advice that is very effective and anyone can just start applying it immediately. Gavin Kearney, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Gavin Kearney. This episode was produced by Abigail Bircham, Gillian Duffy, Oliver Cadell and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Norse Bergamo. If you enjoyed listening, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes, other episodes and any bonus content. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.